I'm your host, Cullen, and this is Cauldron, a military history podcast. On today's episode, let's go back to a time when Spanish treasure fleets still sailed the seas, when Louis the Sun King still sat upon the French throne at Versailles, and when English and Dutch warships prowled the Iberian Peninsula. Let's go back to October 23rd, 1702, and the Battle of Vigo Bay. All right. Hello again, and thank you for joining me. My name's Cullen. I'm your host, and today we've got a very exciting, interesting little battle for you. Uh, It is the first naval battle that we'll be covering in quite some time. I want to say the last one might have been Jutland. Uh, So this is is exciting for me, particularly because this is the, if not the high watermark of the age of sail, it is getting to that point. I would say high water mark for me is 1770 to 1810, Nelson, that whole time period. We are we're, we're getting there, but we're not quite at that point yet. This is kind of the adolescence of the age of sail. It's really, uh, it's a fascinating battle. It's part of the Spanish succession, the War of the Spanish Succession, and as you can hear, I have a hard time with S's, so uh, bear with me as I struggle my way through saying Spanish succession over and over. Um, Why is this important? Well, it's kind of a foundation episode for the next two episodes, which will also be part of the War of Spanish Succession. It is leading us kind of, we're building towards what I believe to be one of the most interesting, maybe important, sometimes called most decisive battles of of world history, definitely of European history, that is the Battle of Blenheim. So we're headed in that direction. Today's episode is kind of creating a foundation, a little bit of a palette for us to work with. And then as we go over the next few episodes, we'll get to Blenheim. Why is this time period particularly interesting to me? This is a fascinating part of European history because this is the time period in which the empires, the great empires that would all begin to either wither and die with the the First World War and in large part have have ceased to exist, but really ruled the world for about 200 years. This is the time period in which they were in their awkward stage, I guess you could call it. This is the time period in which they start to grow hair in weird places and have a hard time with acne. And, And this is really their puberty period, because after the 1750s and right about the time of the Seven Years' War, and the French and Indian Wars, or otherwise known as the French and Indian Wars, you have the full-on arrived on stage empires of, of, of Great Britain and the French and, and the Russians, and you've really got the empires as we know them, uh, especially after Napoleon. Uh, they, they've kind of solidified and hardened into their, their the versions that we can easily kind of grab onto. Before that time period, you had these weird little, not sure what they want to be. The, the 
the French in particular are struggling because they don't really have a great sense of identity in terms of what they will be. Uh, at the moment, they are very clearly a, a kingdom ruled by an all-powerful king who rules and dictates by fiat. Uh, the Sun King, Louis XIV, is, is maybe one of the most king kings of all European history. He's especially uh, interesting because he has such a long reign. His, his decision-making is, I mean, almost directly affects the next 200 years of French history up to today. Uh, the Sun King would take over in, I want to say, the 1650s and die in 1715, I want to say. So you've got 75 years of him ruling France. And in that period of time, you have just a huge amount of world of world events happening and, and decisions being made that will go on to affect not just France, but the rest of Europe and the world. This is the king who creates Versailles. This is the king who basically says to, to his ministers and his, you know, his descendants that the state is the tool of the king, that the state and its people are meant to be used by the king. And the best use for them is through military victories. He is uh, a militarist to his core. He sees his military as the best way for him to build his own reputation and enhance his reputation. And in the way that Louis XIV in, saw the world, if his reputation was enhanced and built upon, then France's was that they weren't two different things, that the French reputation nationally and internationally was directly intertwined to his success. So in order to maintain that, Louis had to continuously win battles, had to continuously win wars. Even during peacetime, he was planning and preparing for the next war. One of his uh, generals, or well, one of his engineers, who was a, a brilliant, brilliant man, who I've always been fascinated, is uh, Vauban. Eventually, we'll cover a couple of Vauban's sieges so that we can dive into him because he's uh, he's always been one of my little, you know, every military history buff has a, a couple, a cadre, if you will, of lesser known generals and leaders and soldiers and warriors that they they kind of always have in their back pocket that they want to talk about and Vauban is one of those guys for me so that's enough about Louis but basically keep in mind that this is a time period where the standard empire of Great Britain and France and all that is yet to exist they are becoming what they will be right now and Great Britain is is really clearly starting to understand its role as a maritime state. It is here at this time period, this juncture, after the Dutch-Anglo Wars, which I think there were three, maybe four of them through the 1600s, after their uh, their revolution, their own civil war, uh, the, the glorious revolution, after all of that in the 1600s, England is kind of presented with a... a position and it's it's basically well you really can't do much on the continent you're not capable of of 
dictating to other countries yet, but you have the ability to, to be the strongest, most dominant power on the seas. That really was up for grabs. The, there was a chance there at the end of the 1600s where, uh, at the end of the 17th century, when the French and the Spanish were definitely in there. Uh, once the Dutch were kind of knocked out by everybody, the French and the Spanish were able to vie for a, a strong spot in terms of naval power or premacy. Uh, the British were in there, and eventually the British come out on top. It's not until later in this war, the War of the Spanish Succession, that we'll see Britain do what it should never do. Uh, wherever it, or Whenever it tries to uh, m commit large land forces to the continent, it tends to overreach. Uh, now, obviously, there are instances where that's not the case. Waterloo. But... Waterloo is a very unique case in terms of uh, the time and the commitment. It was known or it was believed that at Waterloo it would be a, a very large commitment for a very short span of time. The vast majority of the land commitment against Napoleon on the British end was uh, almost all of it was in smaller campaigns against the perimeter of Napoleon's European empire, the Iberian Peninsula, uh, some actions in the Middle East, and small incursions in the Baltics. But the British, or the, the English at the time, they realized in 1690s, 1700, that if they're going to make a play for, for dominance, it's going to have to be at sea. So they start to really buy into the idea of the, the fleet in being and creating a larger fleet than everybody else. But they also recognize that one of the best ways for them to ensure their dominance is to not just go after their opponent's ships, but also their shipping. And we're about to get to it. Uh, so we talked about Louis. Now let's get to the War of the Spanish Succession. And Louis is directly responsible for that. Uh, well, not for the whole war, but for kind of the kickoff and how it goes. Because what happens is Charles II of Spain, he dies, dies childless in 1700. This is a big deal. Now, it's not a surprise, but it is a big deal. It's not a surprise because Charles II of Spain is a Habsburg, which means he is fairly inbred. Uh, I don't know if that's the proper term anymore, but I remember that's what my dad used to call people. Um, so that's the term we're going to use. Basically, the Habsburgs maintained their power and their prestige and their wealth by ensuring that none of those things went to anybody else. So they kept it within the blood. They kept it pure. And by pure, I mean they got their genetic pool pretty messy. Uh, by keeping it fairly shallow. They were marrying cousins, and not that everybody in Europe, or, you know, not that it was particularly unique for that to be the case, because it, it really wasn't. There was quite a bit of that going on with the royal families of Europe at the time. But the Habsburgs were uh, a little bit more intense about it. They were less concerned when you had uncles marrying nieces and nephews marrying aunts. And there was, uh, you know, a general kind of uh, look the other way mentality when that was happening within the Habsburgs, which leads to Charles II 
famously a I I'm not going to say this, but at the time and throughout history, people have called him a monster, a um, and a, a moron, and all sorts of terrible things. Uh, he was definitely not a good-looking guy. Uh, he also seems to have been lame and and might have been you know dim, but he also survived a lot of 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 diseases and illnesses that would have killed other people. He had I think he had rickets and, and measles and smallpox and, and maybe chickenpox, but he had a bunch of different things uh, and they would have normally killed people at that time period especially these were these were fatal fatal diseases. He survives all of it. Uh, so he had a fairly healthy constitution uh, and it also seems like modern historians have been able to, connect the dots a little bit and gone back and, and revised his for a long time he was considered a fool maybe um, um, maybe you know very mentally ill or slow uh, and, and and intellectually subnormal I don't know exactly what the term is nowadays but um, modern historians are looking back and saying that might not be the case that he very well could have just been uh, an ugly person who European history has now labeled like, you know, a monstrous moron. That might not be the case. Either way, he dies childless, which was another side effect of the inbreeding amongst the Habsburgs. And when that happens, all of Europe kind of goes into overdrive because the situation is that whether or not France and Spain become one giant kingdom or they remain two separate countries. That's it. That's the war of the Spanish succession comes down to that right there. And Louis the 14th obviously wants his country to be conjoined to Spain for one major reason, which is the Spanish main. Now, the Spanish Main is Central America, Mexico, many of the Caribbean islands, and then the northeast, northeast part of South America. This is where Columbus and all the conquistadors kind of came about and made their fortune, killed off untold millions of, of Native Americans and natives. And in the process, they found silver. A little bit of gold, but lots and lots and lots of silver. Famously, the Spanish Empire, the Spanish Kingdom, is like a, a almost like a heroin addict through history because they get addicted early on to this this smack, uh, this silver smack, and. They, it's the only thing that keeps them alive for a long time. Spain is basically just living, you know, huffing the last gasps of imperial power with these, you know, these shipments of silver that are coming from the Spanish main. But there's nothing behind it. It's there's the power that they have is is very transitory. They don't have much to back up 
the the money that they're getting from the Spanish main. That doesn't mean that Louis the Fourteenth doesn't want to get his hands on some of that Spanish silver. In fact, one of the little side stories at play with the Battle of Vigo Bay that we're going to talk about in a few minutes is that Louis has told the French the French admiral whose job is to protect that Spanish shipment of silver and to his job is to guard it and bring the convoy safely home. He's told by Louis of, of France that if that convoy finds its way into a French port, maybe that's the safest place for it. In fact, maybe he shouldn't just take it there if need be, but maybe that should be the end goal anyways. So you have a very interesting dynamic here where the leading partner in the French and Spanish alliance, which is, is Louis XIV, he's almost not even, he, he's trying to keep Spain propped up, but he doesn't really care if Spain survives. Uh, I mean, he would, he would love to have that territory added to the French empire, but really if he can just kind of keep it in existence while he mainlines that, that, that heroin coming from the Spanish main, then uh, Louis XIV would be a happy man either way. Obviously, the man that he wants to put forward is Charles II's chosen person, which is Philip of Anjou, who is the grandson of Louis XIV and his heir. So again, if Charles II puts up Philip of Anjou, and that's the grandson and heir of Louis XIV, when Louis XIV, who is now has been sitting on the French throne at Versailles for 70 years, when he dies, which is probably pretty nearby in time, the throne of France and Versailles goes to Philip of Anjou, who has just taken the throne of Spain, if everything goes the way Louis and Charles want. For obvious reasons, the British and most of the German kingdoms and the Austro-Hungarian Empire do not want that to happen. In fact, they fear that if France and Spain take up this, this position where they are one giant kingdom, Italy is soon to follow, and then with the majority of Western and Central Europe under control, under the control of one throne, that the smaller independent states in Central Europe, those uh, that that little scattershot, buckshot, not even a country, but groupings of small countries and principalities that is the Holy Roman Empire, that that will be the next item on the menu for the Bourbons. So they don't want that. The Austro-Hungarians don't want that. The British don't want that. They create a grand alliance, and they are they do their best to to stop that. This is again eventually going to get us to Blenheim, but we have to kind of set the ground rules here, give an idea of exactly what this this all looks like before we dive in. All right, so let's take it to Vigo Bay. The particular fleet that was sought at Vigo Bay by the British under Admiral Rook 
was one of, if not the largest, silver fleets to ever leave Veracruz in Mexico. And Veracruz was famously where all the silver and all the gold and anything that was valuable every year would get pooled at Veracruz, and then they'd wait for all the galleons to show up and then their escort to show up, and then they would go from Veracruz to Havana, and at Havana they'd pick up even more escorts and probably try and suss out wherever the the pirates or the British or whoever might be hunting them, which always was the case, uh, wherever they might strike. And from Havana, then they would head on to Cadiz or Cadiz, 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 Um, I'm going to say Cadiz. But so at Veracruz, they collect their cargo of silver for the year. And this is 13 million pesos worth, which I believe is somewhere around today like five or i think i want to say 15 million 10 million anyhow it's it's an absolute huge haul Uh, and from havana the spanish galleons and the galleons are really these are these are huge ships they are three-masted they're they're made for Plying merchant waters. They're made to travel across the Atlantic with a hull full of goods and then go back with a hull full of gold or silver or whatever it might be. That can also translate to troops in some cases. The Dutch liked to build galleons that were really low and fat and and wide. Uh, The British famously built them a little bit thinner and narrow, less controlled but would be able to carry more guns Uh, that's just nerdy side stuff you don't need to know that for this particular battle so at havana the french escorts that were sent by louis the 14th to make sure that that spanish cargo of silver makes it back to spain and again maybe france if possible the french show up and they join the 22 spanish vessels with 34 French ones. And they move out at late July, July 24th or 25th, 1702. They leave Havana and head to Cadiz. Now, in the transit, there is a English force that is hunting them. There's a English force that is trying to, to not only capture the the silver fleet, but there was a fleet under Admiral Rook who went to try and take Cadiz. Uh, he went and failed to capture the port, and in the process, he begins to head back home. Now, a Captain Thomas Hardy in his ship, the Pembroke, hears that in Vigo Bay, which is in northern Spain, just, just north of Portugal, that the Spanish and French combined fleet has sheltered in Vigo Bay. It is late September, September 23rd, and Thomas Hardy on his little book, uh, little ship, the Pembroke, hears this, and then he flies to Lagos in Portugal, and he reports this to Rook. Now, Admiral Rook must have been... I mean, he must have been floored. He must have been ecstatic because he thought he was taking news of a failure, uh, of a defeat, 
home to the king and the people of England. And instead, he has a wild opportunity. Uh, one of, of only a few times in history where the opportunity was, was able to be taken advantage of, where a Spanish treasure fleet was taken. Uh, and he sees that this is a great opportunity. Vigo Bay is a... It's interesting. If you look up a map, I'm looking at it right now, it's both a very easily attacked position and an easily defended position. So it must have been a bit of a... I can see a situation where an admiral would look at this and, and have to really think long and hard about whether or not the juice is worth the squeeze. Because Vigo Bay, the entrance is really wide. Uh, the, there's two small islands at the very mouth of Vigo Bay, but they're they're a little bit north. So there's a nice wide opening towards the south in between those islands and the mainland. You could easily maneuver a, of an entire fleet into that space. It tapers as it goes farther east and north. As it tapers, it gets to a very narrow spot, and then it opens up into a inland bay almost. It's, it almost looks like a lake uh, that, again, you could probably... There's quite a bit of maneuvering uh, capabilities or maneuver space in that area. So I can see a situation where... You could bottle up a, a force in there and, and really do damage, which is what actually happened. But uh, it would be a long and hard decision because where it narrows, if you have to get your ships into that space uh, and they have any kind of artillery on either side, uh, you're, you're, you're looking at a, a slaughterhouse, a charnel house, uh, pretty quickly, I would think, or the potential for it. So... Anyhow, we end up with the decision by Rook to to go. And so he gets this news September 23rd. He hightails it from Lagos and he arrives off of Vigo October 22nd. And it's here that he does his thinking. He's looking at this situation. He's got 15 ships, uh, English ships and 10 Dutch ships. So you're looking at 25 ships of the line with an assortment of frigates and fire ships. So small ancillary ships that are there to assist and, and perform different particular and very specific acts. So frigates are great for scouting. They're great for communications. They add to your firepower. Uh, they're very, very quick, swift, small ships. Ships of the line are your classic large heavily masted, heavily rigged ships that have multiple decks of guns. Uh, in some cases, hundreds of cannon will eventually be put on these things. They're just, uh, they're basically floating artillery platforms. The French have 15 ships of the line, three Spanish galleons, and they've got, again, multiple frigates, fire ships, and, and, and smaller ships to kind of round out their fleet. Reading the terrain, the French set up a pretty good defensive position. They've built a couple of forts on the south bank of the mainland. So as Rook is sailing his ships up, he's going to have the potential of a couple of artillery positions on his right hand or port hand side as the fleet is sailing up Vigo Bay. 
To deal with that, he offloads some ground forces at Vigo. So he's got a bunch of, of ground troops that are going to go and working alongside the, the right-hand side of his fleet, he's going to send them to take out those guns so that his ships don't have to deal with going through a gauntlet on their way up there. The other problem that the British under Rook are facing is that they have a they have to pass through a boom. And a boom is pretty straightforward. It is, uh, I think, famously at the city of Constantinople, the Golden Horn, there's a boom that was almost like impossible to break through. Uh, but basically a boom is wherever you have a, a an inland bay like Vigo, where you've got this this little spit of land that reaches out to each other that you can use something to to wall off. So a boom is, in this particular case, it's a bunch of masts that have been connected with chains and then strung across the water by uh, these thick, heavy-duty chains. And in the process, you're creating a kind of a wall across the water. Ships, unless they've got really, really good speed, are not going to be able to cross it, or they run the risk of janking themselves up as they go across it. The other thing, too, is you you really you run the risk of getting caught on this, and if your enemy has guns trained on this position, if the enemy fleet is anywhere nearby, they're going to just rake the heck out of whatever ship is caught up in that space. That's what the French hope happens. That is not what happens. Uh, the early morning of October 23rd, the ship Torbay, captained by Admir Vice Admiral Hobson, the Torbay was in a pretty interesting position because the Torbay's mission was to break the boom. It had a small contingent of English and Dutch ships following it but not close enough where it could lend immediate support this is obviously so that if there is a catch and everything gets bunged up on the boom not all these ships are going to get destroyed it's basically just the torbay and that that risk was pretty high because the way that the french admiral had arrayed the french fleet behind the boom was that on either end of the boom, so where it was anchored into the mainland on either end, you had, on each end, you had one and two of the largest ships that the French had, these huge man-of-wars. And then arrayed, arrayed between those two, you had five or six of the other French man-of-war ships, these massive multi-gun ships, and they were trained on the boom. So anybody that's going to have to break that is going to face some withering fire. Well, the Torbay does that. It slams into the boom, and it breaks the boom, which mission accomplished. However, the wind dies almost immediately after the Torbay breaks that boom. So for a few minutes here, the English squadron that was supposed to follow and expand on it and help the Torbay take on these, these massive French ships, they're nowhere to be seen. And the Torbay is only working on wind power, so when the wind dies, it's just sitting there, just taking a pounding. And the French, 
they send in one of their small fire ships, and that fire ship comes right up alongside the English Torbay. Now, fire ships historically have been among the most terrifying things that sailors have ever had to deal with for obvious reasons. You are on a wooden platform with nothing but cloth above you and nothing but wood and gunpowder below you. Oh, and maybe oil and tar and pitch. So pretty much everything around you is extremely flammable and in many cases extremely explosive. Now, the thing about this particular fire ship is that it was part of the treasure fleet. So when the French got to Vigo Bay, they intelligently started to unpack the heavy stuff first because the heavy stuff is typically the most valuable so a lot of the silver and mineral wealth that came over from the spanish main was actually already unloaded when the english showed up and as we will see in the aftermath they they didn't quite get away with as much money from this as they thought however they did destroy this french fleet because what is on that fire ship that the French have set against the English Torbay? Well, it's snuff, and snuff is very flammable. Snuff is tobacco. It's kind of ground down to the point where you can actually put a little bit on the back of your hand and snort it up like a little bump of cocaine. I've actually done snuff a couple of times. It's a weird tobacco high. It's kind of a nasally, zippy, like peppery. Uh, I wouldn't do it again, but it was definitely interesting and worth a try just for the idea of what, what these people were, were doing. Uh, so yeah, so this fire ship is full of snuff and it blows up. And you might think that the fire ship that is now right up against Torbay blowing up is bad for the the torbay but in this particular case it actually works to benefit the torbay because once the fire ship explodes and sinks now the british aboard the torbay have the ability to put out the flames kind of control the damage that the fire ship has done and prepare themselves for the rest of the battle while that's all unfolding the wind picks up again and the english and dutch fleet fly or well it, it it sails into Vigo Bay proper and begins laying about the rest of the French ships and in no time at all the French ships are captured sunk set on fire a lot of the fire uh, the ships that were torched were actually torched by the French the French of the 15 ships of the line two frigates and one fire ship not a single vessel escaped five of them were captured by the english one by the dutch and the rest were torched either by the french or the allies the spanish they go through the exact same thing they lose three galleons uh 10 plus of their smaller trading uh, trading fleet all of the um small ships were destroyed or taken and that's pretty much the Battle of Vigo Bay. Now, the implications of Vigo Bay are where the rubber meets the road. Now, first off, I want to just a couple interesting little side notes. The 
silver again the amount of money that was actually lost at vigo bay was kind of a propaganda thing for the english because it wasn't really as much as the english made it out to be in fact the value was about 14,000 pounds and the coins used or the coins minted and the the master of the mint at that time by the way is Isaac Newton for anybody that's looking for a little trivia factoid um the coins that were made at that time with that silver were of queen anne and they say vigo on the bottom uh, of the coin so if you can find one of those you've got yourself a little fortune right there but at the time 14,000 pounds of silver a ton of money but not the millions and millions of pounds that people have forever made it out to be afterwards and and most of the 4 million pesos ended up going to the uh, the king of of well both the king of Spain and the king of France or at least benefiting both of their continued campaigns in the war of the Spanish succession the interesting implications of the Battle of Vigo Bay is where it really gets, you know, really kind of murky and also makes a lot of, of historical sense. So King Peter of Portugal, at this point, he is allied with Spain and France, but he's kind of going along to get along. He's not hugely into this whole bourbon thing because eventually it means that you know if if the bourbons own france and spain and maybe parts of italy and maybe parts of germany well eventually they're going to look at portugal and say well why don't we just own the whole iberian peninsula so his you know, he he's he's going along to get along because he recognizes most of his country's wealth and power comes from its overseas trade with its overseas colonies, mainly Brazil. And if the French and Spanish can protect that trade line, then he's going to have to go along with them. Battle of Vigo Bay proves that not only can they not protect their own or his trade, but they can't protect their own trade. So he is almost immediately flipped to the British or the English and makes a treaty of alliance with them. This is very interesting because it is not the first time. We are going to see Portugal be kind of the foothold of British territorial or continental military power in the future. And particularly, you're going to see the Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, turn Portugal into what amounts to a fortified military mustering base camp kind of state where he's going to build the lines of Torres Vedras. He's going to turn Portugal into a military base where he can move forward out of and yet be protected in case of crisis. That is one implication of Portugal turning here. You also have Portugal taking the side of the British at the time of the French and Indian War. You also have them taking a, a active, positive, uh, a, they're a positive trade partner with Britain throughout the next 200 years. So that relationship is born here at Vigo Bay, and it's, uh, it's extremely important going forward in the future. The other 
interesting little side note here is that Admiral Rook, the British captain, or the British admiral, he is a interesting little guy. He's He's been in the service for 40, 50 years. He's worked his way up to the admiralty board. He is the captain who was entrusted to bring William II of Orange, William of Orange, over when the Glorious Revolution happened. He was at Bantry Bay. He was at Beachyhead. He's a really important figure in the Royal Navy from the 1660s to the 1700s. Uh, and and he gets no play as, uh, as the great admiral because he kind of has a bit of a checkered pass. Cadiz didn't work out. And then Vigo Bay is great, but it's not a huge, like, boon. It's a great victory, but not a huge boon in the Nelson way. And then he goes on to the Battle of Malaga, Malaga. And this is a huge deal because it's at Malaga where Rook captures Gibraltar. Uh, the The battle itself is kind of a stalemate. It well, it's a strategic victory for the the English and a tactical draw. And the at the Battle of Malaga, we'll eventually talk about it at some point, I'm sure, down the road. But the French fleet is so beat up that it has to go back into harbor at Toulon. And the English are also so beat up that they can't pursue it. But from here on out, the French don't try and leave Toulon. So he wins there. But the real gem is that he takes Gibraltar. And for the next 250 years or however long it ends up being, 300 years, Gibraltar plays a key, a linchpin role in British dominance of the Mediterranean and... British imperial, um, in the British Empire's dominance of maritime trade around the world. So Vigo Bay, a small, you know, we're talking 35, 40 ships max, but in the grand scheme of things, a really outsized impact on events later down the line. Okay, that's the Battle of Vigo Bay. Uh, I ran long here, or longer than I thought I would, but again, I enjoy talking about this time period particularly, uh, so I will make sure next week I try and go a little bit shorter. Uh, next week is the Battle of Schlesenburg, and then we are headed to Blenheim. So keep that in mind. If you have any comments, concerns, questions, thoughts, ideas, Shoot me an email or hit me up on one of the social media accounts. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook and Instagram. I'm also doing a, I'm producing a show called School of War. If you have interest in hearing interviews with authors or current military thinkers or people who are active in uh, military operations today, go ahead and li give a listen to School of War. Aaron B. McLean, he's one of, the, he's a brilliant guy and he's the host we're doing we're trying to put together a cool little show there so give that a listen rate and review uh subscribe to both share both we will talk to you guys next week and uh we look forward to seeing you soon bye now